This is Sparks and Wiry Cries, taking a modern look at classical song with Martha Guth and Erica Switzer. Welcome back to Sparks and Wiry Cries. We're your hosts, Martha Guth and Erica Switzer. We're just back from summer vacation and on to our second season. We are going to be paring things down a bit this year due to a new baby, a plethora of work, yay, and a dissertation that needs to be written. And I'd like to be specific about that. It is your baby and yes. my dissertation. Although your dissertation could well be described as a baby as well. <laughs> Feeling like it right now. After this episode, you can look for us now on a monthly basis with episodes coming out on or around the 15th of the month until June of next year. So today we're going to be listening to some English songs, that is, songs sung in English, written by English composers. Got that? From England. Yes, got it. Got it? All okay. England. And these songs are taken from a brand new CD called Summer Schemes, and we're going to give you more information about that very soon. So English song has had a varied past. We're not going to go very deep into the history of it. We just wanted to sort of bring up just a couple of points. Uh, the history of English song is full of many gaps where there's not always been a wonderful composer on the scene. However, the range from John Dowland to Henry Purcell to Benjamin Britten leaves no doubt that English song really contains some of the best of all of the literature. Specifically today, we're looking at songs written in the early 20th century. Our two performers are Liz Upchurch at the piano and baritone Peter McGilvery. Baritone Peter McGilvery has won prizes at the Montreal International Music Competition, the Queen Sonia Competition in Oslo, Norway, the 2003 CBC Young Performers Competition, where he took first place. His performance season is full of concerts in Canada and abroad for the next year, and he's also looking forward to joining the roster of the Met Opera in New York. Those are for productions of La Boheme and Capriccio during the 2010-11 season. And on a more personal note, as much as I love shopping list biographies, <laughs> I just want to say that Pete McGilvery's was just one of those friendly kind of guys. When you see him, I don't know, say in Toronto where he lives, you just want to run up to him and give him a big bear hug because yeah. that's exactly what he would yeah, do. Yeah, he's terrific to work with. British pianist Liz Upchurch works also in Toronto at the Canadian Opera Company as a vocal coach and repetitor. And she is so much more than that. She has... Uh, worked in England, in Europe, in North America. She's been broadcast on uh, the BBC, on Norwegian radio, and on the CBC in Canada. She's worked at the Banff Centre. And I met her when I attended a course at Britain Piers 12 years ago. And she was, for me, a great mentor for those 10 days or whatever it was. She made me feel safe, although I was the baby of the course, and she taught me things that I needed to learn at that point in my career, and I've always been incredibly thankful to her for that. Yeah, I have to say, well, I know that Pete and Liz met at the Canadian Opera Company, and that's also where I met her as well, and she is easily one of the most knowledgeable and passionate people teaching song and opera on the Canadian musical scene. Her love of music just shines through in everything she does. So we asked both Pete and Liz a few questions about their CD and the process of recording, because they produce the CD on their own. Liz, in particular, was very specific about her love of live music and the spontaneous beauty of artists who are often fallible on the concert stage. Having said that, she thinks that's a good thing. Uh, it's clear that her artistry shines in the beautiful collaboration on this recently released studio recording. She wrote the following about working with Pete. We have done a number of recitals. It's so comfortable working with him, even if there are long periods of time before we work together again. 
Collaborating with Pete is like having a great conversation with an old friend. And conversely, he writes, it's a little different collaborating with another artist you might have considered a teacher only a few years prior. I think it depends on the personalities as to how you negotiate the musical relationship. Luckily, I think Liz and I are very sympathetic to each other. We listen a lot, go with how things feel in the moment, rather than codifying all of the effects in pencil. We talk about the poetry and the dramatic line of the piece and leave the rest, hopefully, to the composer. Liz said the following about live performance versus recorded music. I think that having a CD of art song is more like a personal luxury item today. As much as I love listening to artists from the last century of recordings, nothing will ever replace the experience of a live concert. I think the studio has created a world that is almost humanly unattainable, and now audiences have a false expectation of what they believe they should hear. A recording gives one the ability to erase and correct any mistake or blemish that is a strange power to hold as an artist. It's like watching the Food Network. You can watch someone prepare an exquisite meal, but you will never truly experience eating it unless you're there. I love that. Pete says in response, preparing for a CD is a bit different than for a concert. You can't fully control what happens live, but you can to an extent in a recording session. After each take, you hit the booth, cringe, and listen to what you've just done. <laughs> so true. Yeah. So in order to save time during part of that process, because the studio time is so precious, you need a clearer idea of what you ultimately want to hear. You also have to be flexible about what is possible and what isn't, both vocally and technologically. There are limitations. Well, I think that's one of the great gifts of recording is how much you learn just from hearing yourself. I agree. On the few occasions when we've done that together, I find that our performances are incredibly different after going through the recording process. For the better. For the better, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Liz wrote the following about song. For me, a song is a moment captured in time that lives when it is truly shared in performance. Some settings are like little mysteries that are to be puzzled over while others speak so immediately to my understanding. Figuring out how a composer has realized a text in rehearsal is an endless source of joy and frustration. Sometimes there aren't any real answers. The process of taking the questions can be enough to start the voyage into a song. There is no one certain answer, and although the notes and words will stand the test of time and be unchanging, it is in the interpretation of this that holds its fascination to me. I believe that singing is the most powerful form of communication known to man. We sing when speaking is simply not enough. Life without it would be an unimaginable and destitute existence for all of us. Today we're going to look at four songs from three different composers on this disc. And the first two come from composer Peter Warlock. So Peter Warlock was born in 1894 with the name Philip Heseltine. Did I say his last name right? I have no idea. We're going to go with that. Tyne. I think it was Tyne. Clementine. Heseltine. I'm glad we have that figured out. <laughs> Peter Warlock, let's just call him that, it's easier. <laughs> Composer, editor, writer on music. Warlock came from a wealthy family. He had an enviable education at Eton College and began pursuing musical interests in his late teenage years, which is late compared to yeah. uh, some of his colleagues. His formal musical training was quite limited, uh, but he took inspiration from his contemporaries, including Frederick Delius and Roger Quilter. He's mainly known for his 150 songs and for his skilled miniature forms. 
1916, he published his first musical article, and this is when his pseudonym, Peter Warlock, appears. His choice of name may have stemmed in part from his fascination with the occult, and in part from his frequent clashes within London musical circles. It turns out he had a fair number of enemies, and I guess he was trying to protect himself from being rejected simply by his name. Nice. A year later, Warlock fled England for Ireland in fear of military conscription, and there enjoyed a prolific and inspired period of composition. And a second flowering took place in Wales in 1922, when he again fled England after losing a job as editor of a music periodical. Later in life, as his family coffers became depleted and the demand for his compositions had dried up, depression set in. Warlock was found dead from gas poisoning in 1930, and the coroner ruled insufficient evidence to know whether it was suicide or accident. And here ends today's CSI episode. In his first song today, In an Arbor Green, written in 1922 during his stay in Wales, Warlock's style is lighthearted, sweet, and innocent. The second, Late Summer, was written a few months earlier and, conversely, is mellow, content, and reflective. So here we have our two performers of the day, Pete McGilvery, Liz Upchurch, performing these two songs by Peter Warlock. Sleep when as I lay, the birds sang sweet in the midst of the day. I dreamed fast of mirth and play. In youth is pleasure, in youth is pleasure. Methought I walked still to and fro, and from her company I could not go. And it was not so in youth is pleasure, in youth is pleasure. Yet all my heart is surely pies of her alone to have a sight, which is my joy and heart's delight. In youth is pleasure, in youth is pleasure.
moving on to our second composer of the day, Ivor Gurney, was born in 1890. He had his musical training at the Royal College of Music before and after his service years in World War I. He spent 16 months at the front lines as a private and was wounded in April of 1917 and gassed in September of the same year. These injuries, along with an already unstable personality, led to a life of mental illness. He was manic-depressive, um, something that had manifested in his earlier life, and his family had him declared insane, which led to his being institutionalized for the last 15 years of his life. He died at the City of London Mental Hospital from tuberculosis in 1937. The finest of his nearly 100 published songs were written between 1919 and 1922, and nearly 200 further songs remain in manuscript. Gurney wasn't particularly moved by the folk movement in England. Rather, he took his inspiration from the German masters. He had a real gift for long lyrical lines and was particularly sensitive in his word setting. Even as a poet, Gurney made a mark. The song we're going to hear now, Sleep, is one of his masterpieces, and it's taken from the five Elizabethan songs first published in 1920. The intimacy that is conjured in the simplicity of the piano writing and the hushed prayer-like vocal line is a perfect snapshot of a ravaged man begging for relief. This song was the favorite on the disc of both Liz and Pete, so we felt like we just had to give you guys a listen. It happens to be one of my favorite songs, too, uh, made all the more poignant by the fact that our poet, Fletcher, was an insomniac. Just like you right now, Martha. Exactly. It makes the text incredibly personal and the setting all the more relevant. I think to Liz as well. She's got a nine-month-old going on over there. <laughs> all right. Well, let's pray for some sleep then. Oh, 
So we thought now might be a good time to talk about self-producing a CD. This is something that is fascinating for me, Martha, I think for, for you too. Absolutely. And Pete has, you know, gone through this whole process and was good enough to share a whole bunch of information with us about how and, and why he did this. So this is uh, what he wrote. It hasn't been easy to get a high quality recording out there. Here's the story. I came up with a shell of what I thought was a pretty lovely summer festival recital program that I'd been successful with. I wanted to record it, thought it would be a good showcase for my voice, for a top-notch pianist, and to sell to the audience after summer recitals. I had a claim to some studio time at the CBC to record a demo since winning the Young Performers Competition in 2003. They agreed, and the stage was set. But after I had my master copy finished, the task became a question of how do we get this physically made? The idea had been to record it and then shop it around to various record companies for manufacture and distribution. If that didn't come through, I'd do it myself, and that's what ended up happening. I have great friends to whom I entrusted the photography, design, and layout. I secured the rights to the songs not in the public domain, found a manufacturer, and paid for a thousand copies. After a lot of research, I decided to go with CD Baby for digital distribution. They sell both physical as well as digital MP3 versions on their site, as well as distribute to the leading online retailers like iTunes, Amazon, Napster, Rhapsody. The physical copies I don't send to them, I hang on to and sell at concerts through personal connections, and also on consignment at some of the few specialty classical stores that are left. I've easily made back the money I spent on manufacturing and rights, and haven't spent too much on marketing and distribution yet. I also bought several hundred download cards at about 30 cents each to either sell at gigs or give away as demos, include with marketing blurbs and press kits. So that's the story. I've no regrets. I will not get rich and it will still take time to recoup my investment, but it's not like classical musicians are or ever were getting rich through recordings. We've always been performance focused. If I sell all my CDs over the next few years, I will have made much more money than I would have had I been with a label, and I think we all as artists have this impulse to create something more lasting in a physical sense than just wonderful memories of performances past. I also think the future lies in themed concert recital programs and not necessarily in single composer album type shows, and I second that, Pete. 
I think that so few people buy CDs unless they have that personal connection of being at a recital, almost like a souvenir. As far as getting your music distributed digitally, I've already accomplished almost everything a record label could do for me for less than $100. That is the reality of digital music age. We can bypass the labels. I have all sorts of plans to start recording more live performances and release the tracks digitally only. Almost all of the overhead prohibitive to making physical CDs evaporates when you start talking about digital-only releases. I think that there is great potential for revitalization with this format. Disastrous for huge-scale operatic and symphonic <laughs> recordings, but great, I think, for us. That's fantastic. I'm so glad he could write to us about that, because I know we all have a lot to learn, and that certainly seems like the land of opportunity right now. Absolutely. So lastly, we are going to hear the title track from the CD, Summer Schemes, by composer Gerald Finzi, and the poetry is by Thomas Hardy. Finzi was born in 1901, and he too shared in the suffering of the First World War, but from more of a distance. He lost uh, his music teacher in France not long after the death of his father, and he lost his three brothers. Finzi came to live a very simple and well-planned life. He was always politically informed, though a pacifist, agnostic, yet tremendously philosophical. He cherished his time living in the countryside and often invited friends to share in his humble home and his rare apple tree farm. Gotta say, I kind of want to visit Finzi. I want to I taste some of those rare apples. Yeah. Although Finzi and Gurney never met, Finzi worked tirelessly to create a music and letters issue dedicated to Gurney in the year after his death. Finzi himself died in 1956, already compromised by cancer and struck by an infection. Though neither a skilled pianist nor a singer, Finzi had a tremendous gift for creating fluid and well-declaimed and supple lines. You can always hear the rhythm of the poetry so clearly mm. in his music. There's often a touch of the improvisational in his style, though it's always based on a very solid structure. Summer Schemes is the first song of earth and air and rain. That's a song cycle for baritone and piano, written between 1932 and 1936 to the poetry of Thomas Hardy. That's one of Finzi's most favorite poets. He set more than 50 of his poems. The piano writing is rhapsodic, something that Liz Upchurch brings gorgeous natural flair to, and the result is an embracing musical moment. Here is Peter McGilvery, Liz Upchurch, performing the title track to their CD, Summer Schemes. Summer calls again, calls again the little fibers to these hills. We'll go, we too, to that arched vein of leafage where they prime their bills before they start to flood the plain with quavers, minims, shakes, and trees. Before that day 
shall see the water spring, water spring from Chings, the scrubby copses crown. And we shall trace there on creeping to where the cascade tumbles down and sends the bobbing grows the swing and thirds not quite but almost drown. The entire CD of Summer Schemes, which, by the way, also includes some American selections, some German and French selections, based around the theme, of course, of summer, can be downloaded directly off of Pete's website, which is www.petermcgilvery.com or off of cdbaby.com. That's a wonderful site for indie music making and promotion. We will also have all of this information with links available on the Sparks and Wiry Cries website. We would love to encourage you to promote this exciting and talented duo by getting the real thing for your very own. And thank you too to Liz and Pete for giving us uh, so much information about their recording and for being so generous and also simply for their beautiful playing and singing. Yeah. And as always, many thanks to our wonderful, wonderful, wonderful producer, Matthew Principe. Thank you for joining us on this second year of adventures. Many of our performers have a website or a web presence, and for more information, you can go to either sparksandwirycries.com, marthaguth.com, or ericaswitzer.com. You've been listening to Sparks and Wiry Cries. We're your hosts, Martha Guth and Erica Switzer. <laughs>